Oh, it's not like it used to be. <laughs> Welcome back to New Persuasive Words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And happy post-memorial day, Bill. Yes, and to you as well. Bill actually cooked dinner for uh, Lindy and I yesterday, and it was, it was wonderful. Lamb. Lebanese lamb. Lebanese lamb. There you go. I love, it was very good. Yeah. Very good. Well, One of your mul- multiple talents. Renaissance great, man. Great having you over. All right. Well, we're back to, uh, I guess we're the unofficial beginning of the summer. It's cool and rainy here in uh, suburban Philadelphia, so it doesn't quite feel like summer yet. but It doesn't, but it, nonetheless, it is. We, we press on. <laughs> by faith and not by meteorology. Yeah. Um, you, you know, yesterday being Memorial Day, um, and I hope some of you, if all, not all of you, took some time to think about what Memorial Day really is about. It's about remembering how big the trip to Saudi Arabia was and to <laughs> Europe, uh, the G7. It was better than G1 through 6. It was the best sequel to a movie ever. <laughs> Remember it, Memorial Day and chocolate cake. Yeah, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting uh, that... Uh, how the trip is being spun. And uh, uh, it's also, uh, again, thank you, Angela Merkel, <laughs> leader of the free world. Although she did say that we're not, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, she did say that we're not, uh, she didn't say that we have to go, we, not, we can't rely on America alone. She said something like we have to, you know, we have to, in friendship with America, England, and Europe, so I think it, it it was spun a little bit. I want to defend. Yeah, it was. It was the critics of the mainstream media fake news that actually that was spun little, a little, little bit, bit inappropriate. Little bit much, yeah, yeah. No, I do think there is. I I think uh, Bob Woodward recently, uh, the uh, legendary journalist who helped bring down Nixon through the Watergate uh, uh, breakup and scandal and the cover up again. The cover ups would always get you, as you like to say. Uh, but he said we do have to calm down a little bit that every for instance like uh, this jared kushner thing that may turn out not to be the case it may have been the russians who suggested a secret uh first of all jared he, kushner, he see, should not have been mean with the russians anyway that's we the, get you a secret room very nice that's not that should that should have happened anyway but nonetheless yeah we've got we, there's there are some big things i think behind all of this and uh I, again i think this should not break down to all right we have to support the president everything he says nor should we be looking or whatever we can find, it's wrong. I mean, we have to, there has to be a bit of, uh, there has to be some prudence here and some uh, wait to see things really how they, how they'll turn out. Spicy's back and he's better than before. <laughs> hey, la, hey, la, Spicy's back. How long do you think he'll be back? I don't know. He looked embattled today. He looked, he looked, I like spicy. I, 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 I hope spicy stays, but. It's like Although the, Kim Garfoyle, I mean that's tough. I mean, like I, I, I find Kim Garfoyle 
interesting and entertaining. So he, spicy, spicy kind of reminds me of the teacher we had. It wasn't very effective. She had to replace a legend, and we all, you know, it was it, we all missed the teacher she replaced. And uh, yeah, we we were not very nice in this class. And and then one day she just started crying in the middle of class, and we all said, "No, no, we're sorry. We, we we'll be good." I, I kind of feel that's kind of how you know. I think everyone's thinking that well, we've been kind of rough on him. Um, he's the classic example of shooting the messenger, right? <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is uh, shooting and shooting, being shot and shot again, and I feel bad for the guy because he goes out there with it's. It's just tough. Yeah, um, it is. But the real message of Memorial Day, yes, is. Um, Again, remembrance, it has an interesting history. It's remembering those who died to sacrifice uh, in the American wars. It actually had its origins in people dealing with the massive amount of death um, that happened in the American Civil War and um, remembrance days uh, where literally it even started where mothers and sisters and wives had to go to battlefields to gather in the dead. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a stark and tragic um chapter in our history. Uh, I think the trauma of the Civil War uh, and the unresolved issues around the Civil War, particularly the failure of Reconstruction, is still something that gets played out in our society. Um, and for people who aren't aware of history, particularly the revisionist history that was done in the Confederacy about the lost cause, um, there is an awful lot of the spirit of some of what got Donald Trump elected that has been part of the myth-making of, of the South. And, uh, and you know, there was a really, I thought, a one of the most thought-provoking uh, speeches I've heard from a politician for a long time. The mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrell, gave a speech. Uh, it was a week before Memorial Day, actually a week and a half. So it's been about two weeks, week and a half ago. And you may or may not have been following, but they have been in the process of taking down four statues that commemorated uh, the Civil War. One was uh, a statue about Reconstruction. One was um, uh, Jefferson Davis. Uh, the other was General Beauregard. And the last one was Robert E. Lee. And obviously, this it is still legal to paint your car like the General Lee from the <laughs> That is, if you have that down there, you're allowed that. to drive that around. But his speech, he starts out about talking about the great melting pot that the city of New Orleans is. And any of you, it is absolutely bad. He goes through the kind of the rich history of all the variety of people and that our country certainly, you know, New Orleans exemplifies the countries as e pluribus unum, out of many, we are one. But then he goes on to say this, and I think it's worth uh, uh, reading a portion of this. But there are also other truths about our city that we must confront. New Orleans was America's largest slave market, a port where hundreds of thousands of souls were brought, sold, and shipped up the Mississippi River to lives of forced labor of misery, of rape, and of torture. Torture. America was the place where nearly 4,000 of our fellow citizens were lynched, 540 alone in Louisiana, where the courts and shrines separate but equal, where freedom riders coming to New Orleans were beaten to a bloody pulp. So when people say to me that the monuments in question are history, well, what I should just describe is real history as well, and it is the searing truth. And it immediately begs the question, why are there no slave ship monuments, no prominent markers on public land to remember the lynchings, or the black slave blocks, nothing to remember this long chapter of our lives, the pain, the sacrifice, the shame. All of it is happening on the soil of New Orleans. So for those self-appointed defenders of history and the monuments, they are eerily silent on what amounts to this historical malfeasance, a lie by 
omission. There is a difference between remembrance of history and reverence of it. For America, the New Orleans and New Orleans has been a long winding road marked by great tragedy and great triumph. But we cannot be afraid of our truth. As President George W. Bush said at the dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, a great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and corrects them. That begs the question, are we a great nation? (laughs) Well, no, but no. But but I think there's a sense where um, anytime we try to do a revision of history, um, then I think there is the tragedy of failing to learn the lessons of our foremothers and fathers. In other words, one of the great problems of not really studying history in our schools is that we not only have a generation who's ignorant of basic facts, I mean, your average immigrant knows more American history than your average high school student. But we also fail to learn the lessons and own some of the uh, roots of our current problems as well as celebrating the real triumphs that have happened in the past. I completely agree. It's interesting though, every, the, the opening metaphor of the speech, which every like critical race class or anything I've ever been, it's like melting pot is often viewed as the sort of white nationalist, sort of Eurocentric racist metaphor, as opposed to like something they like, toss out where we don't obliterate all cultural distinctions, where we sort of, because the pot is sort of owned by the certain right. tradition and you melt the differences into one. So, I mean, th- there is a kind of assimilationist in the worst sense of conservative impulses, the opening metaphor of the speech. Right. You could say that the culture war is a fight over who gets the pot. And that may... Uh, and, and again, we could argue about... Yeah, we could argue how much but, assimilation is too much and how much is... But I would agree that that's the wrong argument. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, people who do feel, you know, some of the anger of it is felt by some of the people representing the Trump voter is, is legitimate against certain elitist establishments in our country. Now, I think they overstate it. But no, I understand why people feel they don't have a voice. And I understand why they're why it gets framed uh, in the sense of my way or my my side is one who's right. So therefore, we should have the pot. <laughs> yeah, I found this speech moving. And I think it was well written. But I wonder how much that is just because I agree with that. Like, uh, in one sense, I'm someone that has no sympathy for Confederate monuments. It doesn't affect my life at all. I don't give a damn whether there's a Confederate monument, other than to the degree that which it offends somebody. And I'm generally a left-of-center person who doesn't want to offend people on multicultural reasons within reason. So on some level, I, I, I like the sentiments in the speech. I, well, I might ask, though, I've read lots of arguments that would say the same thing about monuments to Washington and Jefferson from people of color and women. Or, or, these are people who we sentimentalize and build monuments to who uh, often committed rape with people they owned and set out specifically to only enfranchise as citizens white guys over 21 who owned land. You can't, you can't even be a renter. Right. <laughs> you can't, so, I mean, like, on some level, at what point do we do we stop desanitizing? Like, what, at what, what pers- what, what, what's the line? Well, I actually think that um, you don't, you know, you, you don't sanitize Washington Jefferson, but at the same time, you can't interpret them outside of their time. But some people could say the same thing about Jefferson Davis and, and well, these. no, but it's not the same thing because it's oh, a, to you, it's not the same. thing. No, don't don't do that. It's what, how much conservative you, commentary did you read on this? No, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a. Relatives have fought on both sides of the Civil War. I mean, I'm just saying, how is this? Like, I'm just saying, if this is a, this is a southern this is a southern mayor coming to grips with his own 
town. Is right, and he's, a, and he's a Democrat, and, and which I'm a Democrat too. And again, I'm a, I agree with the guy. Well, well so were all the people that destroyed deconstruct or well, reconstruction. But I mean that. But that's I mean today those things are right, something no. different. And also the party of Lincoln was you know that it, these things have have changed a little bit. But I'm just saying as something persuasive. If if we're looking at it as a sort of as a triumph over one set of cultural values over the other, it is clear that in an articulate one. I'm saying, is it a moment to bring us together? Probably not. I mean, I, th- I think that actually, and there were protesters on both sides, and I think actually it probably, and again, I'm not saying they shouldn't come down. Again, I'm somebody that, I, I, I'm glad they're not there anymore. Well, I think you have to put in context, what were those statues put and what were they trying to say? The same thing when the Confederate or the battle flag of Northern Virginia, which is the most... Uh, recognized of the Confederate flags, when that was put and incorporated into state flags, that was done uh, in the 50s in most of those states. Sure. No, yeah. And, and I think that, like, so I read this piece in The Federalist, right, which is not, not something I normally read, uh, you know, uh, but maybe I should read more of it. But this guy kind of who, who I've never read before, I don't think I've read him before. This is John Daniel Davidson, J.D. Squared is what I'm going to call him now. And he basically was... Uh, extolling Nikki Haley's decision to take the flag, the Confederate flag, off the Capitol building. He thought that was excellent. Um, And he basically said, but he says that this is something different. And he says, progressives claim a special prerogative to purge our public space of disfavored symbols and monuments, whether of the Confederacy or other historical figures whose views are now offensive by contemporary standards. It's not enough, they say, to add plaques that give greater historical context or add unionist monuments alongside Confederate ones. This should tell you something. The drive to erase the Confederacy from our public squares isn't really about our unity or tolerance. It's about power and politics. Censoring historical symbols is, after all, the cousin of censoring speech and inquiry. Hence the spectacle of Marylando explaining how the Confederacy was on the wrong side of history, even as he rips up historical monuments in the name of progress. At a time when the divisions in our country are deepening and the Americans are sorting themselves and Americans are sorting themselves into increasingly hostile factions, we could do the worst than to gaze on Confederate statues, contemplate their reasons for fighting, and consider what it took to put the country back together. Now, again, that's an argument I'm not incredibly sympathetic to, but I'm not but that doesn't like it doesn't hit me emotionally uh, the way it probably hits J.D. Squared and whoever reads The Federalist for some reason. I think if you put a monument to those who were lynched beside Robert E. Lee or a monument to all the slaves, that would be, that would be a balanced symbol in public space. There's a, but the trouble with the Confederacy and the kind of the cult of the lost cause is that it, that's exactly what it's, but what it's supporting, the noble lost cause. And so there's a sense where that it's not, it's not merely remembering a historical event. And again, as a historian, I, there's part of me, anytime a statue is taken down, there's a part of me as a historical person, no, don't, don't mess with that. We need to learn more history. But that's, see, that's telling a narrative with, without any balance. And, it, and it was, it's part of a whole movement that spent, as um, soon as the Union troops left the South, it became an oppressive regime. And much of the problem we have in terms of race in this country is still a direct result of the failure of Reconstruction. So to have, if you're in a town that has a large mixed population, that's not my statue. Yeah, most of the country that lives on the coast, in the Northeast, in the West Coast, and we have as much problem with police shootings and other things like that. So I, I, I agree. Mean, I, I agree. I, I agree. You can't throw it all at them. I'm not throwing it all at them. And matter of fact, there has been times where, I mean, uh, one could argue that many years Boston was a more racist city than Atlanta. But what I'm trying to say is that don't 
we can't pretend those are naive, uh, neutral symbols, and that to celebrate the Confederacy, uh, particularly in the backdrop of increasing racial tensions and things like that, and lifting up the alt-right and alternative causes in the Confederacy as being a continuation of that, it dishonors, I think it dishonors Confederates who fought, fought they thought they were defending their land. So it, it dishonors my ancestors who probably were used by rich landowners. Yeah. You know, so it dishonors people who died for the person next to them, okay? You know, even like the, the myth, though, the myth is uh, prevalent. You know, for instance, Robert E. Lee, the historian, it gets, it gets incorporated into – you know, standard telling of the story he was a noble gentleman. Yes, he was. You know, the North Lincoln wanted him to be in charge. Thank God he didn't say yes to being in charge in the North. People would often don't realize this, but Robert E. Lee, through his fighting, the way he fought his battles, he inherited. I forget how many, one hundred fifty thousand or so troops when he inherited the Army of Northern Virginia. He lost one hundred sixty thousand troops within a year. He went through a whole army. And in part, I had a professor, uh, a military history professor, who said, we're lucky that Robert or the U.S., you know, Ulysses S. Grant was not a good student. <laughs> because, because Robert E. Lee was a great student. And what wars did he learn? The Napoleonic Wars. By the time you got to the Civil War, they could shoot four bullets to every one that you could in the Napoleonic War. That's part of the reason there was such a, you know, they were still fighting old-fashioned wars. The only thing I'm saying is this myth of Robert E. Lee being this amazing general, facts on the ground, there are some facts on the ground that go counter to that. And so I, I think, to me, the complexity of the history is lost when we merely put, uh, as the writer from The Atlantic Magazine said, when you really merely put this strong white equestrian on top, you know, this huge larger-in-life figure, and as an African-American, you have to walk by that. Oh, I'm in complete agreement. I mean, yeah. I, again, I, I'm not, I'm just, you know, but this is another phrase in this article. He says that, like, in ancient Rome, this move was called the damnatio memoria, the condemnation of memory. And its purpose was covertly, overtly political. The point is to dishonor traitors and depose emperors, which the mayor said that. These were not patriots. They were traitors. They, they were. were. Such, they yeah, were. yeah, sure. It was to dishonor traitors and depose emperors by purging them from public memory. Rome would seize their property, remove their name from public monuments, and destroy or rework their statues. And then he says today this has been revised. And goes on with, revived and it goes on with specific examples. And again, am I sympathetic to that? I go, no. Uh, it, but again, I don't. It, it I, I read a speech like that and it represents my values, so I'm like in agreement with it. I'm like so it, it, it on some level, okay. Uh, my perspective on diversity and race and inclusion wins, and other people lose, and they're probably going to be resentful and angry. Uh, I don't think that's be. I don't think this is going to do anything to palliate things or make them more peaceable for the people that feel like that they're on the losing side of of the historical moment but and maybe that's not that i mean and sometimes that's not that important i mean sometimes you just have to make historical decisions people have to learn how to live with loss yeah i think that's what we certainly have done with our enemies over the you know yeah. history like germany and japan and yeah. others yeah and so I, again i i was was there certain ideals of democracy that were lost in the civil war or at least certain certain um it's hard because, you know, the complexity of, as you mentioned earlier, the constitutional vision that the founding fathers had. I mean, it was tied into a kind of an agrarian kind of elitist worldview. And so some of the – it's the same thing about the very ideal of democracy was born uh, 
from Miletus. You know, the, you know Athens were only, you know, not everyone in, in Athens had equal rights. You oh, know? yeah, no. Very no, few. Yeah, yeah. And so there was a sense where that model, though significantly modified, still influenced the founding of our nation. We're still working out the implications of this experiment. And so I, I think there were things that were lost, absolutely were lost in uh, the fact that the industrial North won the Civil War and it took a centralized war effort to do that. Okay, I, I agree that was lost. Uh, and there were some ideals that were lost, but some of those ideals were so tied into. Well, no, I think you're making my argument now. I would say I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I wouldn't. I don't know that those are good ideals. Even I, 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 I think that the agrarian stuff and the elitism. I think it's better that it's gone. <laughs> you know, uh, right? But but, I, but but then other people. I mean, it's easy if you're from certain segments of the culture, especially if you're a white guy, to say, "Hey, this is tradition with some problems, but it's it's got its great ideals. And we should look more about on the ideals." And the problems, I think if you're part of other groups or you're a woman, it's a lot easier to say, hey, the problem goes all down to the root. Like a lot of times there's as much pain in looking at something like Jefferson is or or, or Washington as there is Robert E. Lee. I mean like that, you know, that that these things are are, have caused different, I think, kinds of reactions and our relationship to this tradition and the figures that are the actors on the stage of it are different depending on our social location. Yeah, but okay, I I agree that. But then so you you would agree to keep the Washington statue, but take but you're okay with taking the Robert E. Lee statue. Are you asking if I'm okay? But yeah, I, I could be. I don't know. I could be probably persuaded on, on lots of things with statues. I, I don't particularly like monuments. I don't find monuments sentimental. But I, you know, this is yeah, part part of it is also America. You know, my fr- conservative f- new friend David French said something. He said this is a great analogy. I never heard something that good. I said you can be a, like if if we had to leave the planet and live Battlestar Galactica because of some <laughs> challenge from robots or something. <laughs> We, that would not make us any less American. If you had to go be Italian on the moon, that would somehow make you less Italian. I mean, there's something right. about, but who we are is on ideals, which are always more eschatological than protological. They're more about where we're going than where we've been. And so I, I, I think there's something about monuments in general that, that I'm not sentimental about. Now, I, I, I'm, it's not that I want to eschew history, but I think it's like my friend Mark Oppenheimer said, you know, I like flags on like, July 4th, like once, you know, or like, I mean, but flags in general become the most empty form of romantic nationalism. And I think to be patriotic as American means you can't be nationalistic because by national blood, soil, the most brutal sort of paganism, that's just something that maybe there's something good in our Judeo-Christian roots that, that has his intention with that. And so I, I tend to put monuments in general up with flags, like in the sense of they offer the worst, the possibility for the worst kind of sentimentalizing and self-delusional things and offer very little uh, on the other way, you know, on the other side of the ledger. But, you know, whatever. I, I don't get – I'm not somebody that goes and says to take them down either. So maybe, yeah, I'm, just, well, maybe I'm just sort of like – The monuments are usually put up by people who lost tremendously. I mean monuments are usually put up by people who the memory of those who are commemorated are living for them. Yeah, and I think you know now again. I, I mean, I maybe as a historical historian, I'm a little more sentimental about because part of my discipline has me think, try to try to think about what it was like to be. I can't do that, but I do find myself trying. Okay, what was- <laughs> but the thing is, the monuments though are created not. It, it, it's it's like it's like pictures of Jesus, right? Paintings of Jesus in a Flemish village, right? 
So they don't take you back to first century Palestine and create historical memory. They create a historical memory of life in the 15th or 16th century in a Flemish village. No, I'm, I'm talking about I'm – I'm, I'm not talking about art, religious art. I'm talking about Gettysburg. I'm no. talking about the monuments that were built by the survivors to remember okay. their brothers that died on the floor. I'm talking about if you go to Verdun and, and walk through there and see thousands and thousands of German, French, and British bones in, enshrined together. I'm talking about the flags on Normandy. Again – those monuments. No, those are different kinds. You just named several different kinds of monuments. Well, you, but I did what, not talk what, about religious art. I'm no, talk- no, but I'm just saying I, I didn't use. I wasn't talking about religious. I was just using an example that some monuments are are closer to the ground than others. Some are crafted no, after but, the but, event. But revision. the monuments we are talking about right now, we start off the Robert E. Lee. Okay. It had a it had a living symbolism for the people that put it up there. I think it's legitimate to critique that kind of living symbolism, particularly in the shadow of the, the uh, racial hate and murder that was done in the shadow of that idea. Well, actually, I'm with you. Okay. I could argue on any side of this point. I, I mean, <laughs> and, and you I, are. And you I are. Have, I have this no, whole I, podcast, yeah. But, I, I have no skin in but, the game but I other, guess than, the other, other thing, than I agree with the decision probably. But the other thing too, I think there's a sense too. For instance, um, whether you're a, a New Orleans sympathizer or you are a Confederate reenactor or you want the Confederacy to come back in some form, walking the graveyards of Gettysburg, and really understanding what now, happened. I would say walking graveyards are different. Uh, and yeah. those, are, those, those kind of symbols. And I think, see, to me, part of, and, or whether we go to Normandy or we turn to Virginia, it's good to remember how awful war is. It's good to remember that kind of stuff. It's good to remember on Memorial Day that, you know, uh, there's a great song by John Gorka. Maybe we'll end with it. On, uh, it's a prayer to St. Peter. Uh, about let him in, and and we, you know, it goes through all the things that these young men will never get to do. It was it was a poem from World War One, and you know when we have a president who's saying we need to send three or four thousand more people back to Afghanistan, it might be good to stop and think about what the two previous presidents have accomplished by sending more people to Afghanistan. So there's the good thing about Memorial Day again is not to romanticize anything, but to remember. The costliness of political decisions. I would say, I, I, hands down, hands down, I would say, there needs to be a study of this. I would say most people on Memorial Day celebrations do not think about, gosh, all the bad wars we've been in. And even in the ones we think are good, how we broke our ideals by bombing civilians. People, that, those are the moments where somebody like Donald Trump can play most on romantic, romantic patriotism. I think that's those celebrations are times when people are least critical. I think those are the times that make people most open to adventuresome military endeavors. I, no, I'm not saying some people don't, but I mean, come on. You're the one that told me never bet on uh, the American public being reflective. And <laughs> that I'm quoting bill to bill. I mean, like, so, I mean, if you're making an argument that these kind of observances – create greater conscious how long have we been doing them how many more wars are we getting just empirically bill as a historian let me ask you are they helping or hurting yeah, are they yeah. having a positive effect or not well you know uh i, I yeah it's a good uh, it, it's not you know but it's it, i will say this you know the uh the first iraq war I would say we'd do more if we just did my Princess Bride thing and oh, just showed just... never get involved in a land war in asia <laughs> You know, Schwarzkopf and Colin Powell uh, approached Iraq, the first Iraq war, uh, in a way different for those of us, at least from studied generals or could remember some generals from Vietnam, a very different, a very different approach. They had learned. Um, I don't, I don't know what we've learned. Uh, it's, we forget, history forgets. I mean, obviously, 
the worst war in the history of humanity was followed 20 years later by an even worse war. I mean, Europe... By the way, the first World War, I think, is the setting for Wonder Woman. I think. Or is it World War II? You're, just, thought, you're just saying that to irritate me right now. Is it World War II? I thought <laughs> World it was, War II. I think the, it's no, World. it's the war to end all wars. That's World but War I. World War I's the war to end all wars. Yeah, they say it's the war to end all wars. I think okay. it's World War I. And I, and I, I will... Uh, all you Wonder Woman fans out there, I'm a big fan of Wonder Woman. We're, only, we're having a, we're having a. You um, want to talk about? There's a great podcast, Imaginary Worlds, that talks about the challenge of making Wonder Woman. It's basically sexism over the years. People don't. Like we're, ha- we're having we're having a men's only showing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, the, the fact is, you know what? Um, I'm not a form of self righteousness, but I purposely, I, 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 as my own, I try. I, I was someone who never had to fall, fight in a war. And I, frankly, at the age of when I was to fight in a war, I was a pacifist. You were and, a lover, not a fighter. I, and I, a singer. I, I, no, I was an angry pacifist. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give myself that benefit of doubt. You know, but I, I think, I think, I try to think about um, the cost of all this. And I think about how many shattered lives are coming back from, uh, from all these continual tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and I don't know. I think uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just end with this. You know, I would argue, as almost like 99% of the world would argue, that World War II was a just cause. Again, there are no such thing as just wars because you can't fight a war justly. But that a, true, a good reading of Augustine and Aquinas who refined it would be there are justifiable wars. But one of the things that um, that we often forget, and we talk about the greatest generation from World War II, I don't know how many families over the years that I have encountered that the shattering of their family began with a father who came back from World War II. Absolutely. And could not cope with it. As a matter of fact, if, who, who struggled with the fact of his killing. And I remember, you know, talking to, you know, second or third generation uh, of, you know, alcoholism and drug problems that came back from the kind of anger and craziness that, you know, the sins of the father on the father. And that was because some 20-year-old or 22-year-old was dropping bombs on Dresden or shooting people they didn't know who had to clean up the pieces of their buddies. And so um, I do think that um, memory is important to we embrace as much of we as we can. I mean, George Washington had um, Anthony Wayne, General Anthony Wayne, massacre a Christian Indian tribe in western Pennsylvania that had been converted by the Moravians so there could be space open for revolutionary retirement soldiers. So that's part of the story that most people don't know. And I think, you know, we need to embrace the full story. And sometimes if the sins of the fathers are still visiting upon the people of a community, then those are those are things that have to be wrestled with and dealt with, and to me, that's just being honest about our history. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think being honest it is incredibly important, and I think because of my own theological anthropology and the Augustinian Neoborian in me, I'm just very, very, very skeptical that on any day in American history we ever even get close to being honest about our history or ourselves. But, but. Um, because I'm of my Bonhoefferism, we have to try. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I think my, yeah, I, I think I mean, trying, I, I would say the best thing to try is de-romanticize, de-romanticize. I, I which, think that's what this whole podcast has in part been about. Have a good day, and We're guys. both so romantic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my name, it ain't now.
Ah, the history books tell it, they tell it so well. The cavalry's charged, the Indians fell. The cavalry's charged, the Indians died. For the country was young, with God on its side. The Spanish Civil War too was soon laid away, and the names of the heroes was made to memorize with guns in their hands and God on their side. The first world war was. Closed out its fate. The reason for fighting I never got straight, but I learned to accept it, accept it with pride. For you don't count the dead when God's on your side. We got weapons of chemical dust. If fire them were forced to, then fire them we must. One push of the button and it shot the world wide. And you never ask questions when God's on your side. About this, that Jesus Christ was betrayed by a kiss. But I can't think for you, you'll have to decide whether Judas Iscariot. 
Goliath had God on his side. So now as I'm leaving, I'm weary as hell. The confusion I'm feeling ain't no tongue can tell. The words fill my head, they fall to the floor. That if God is on our side, he'll stop the 